And then, um, did anybody else get flooded? <laughs> so I'm the only one that is foolish enough to live down here? Okay. I'm the chosen one. <laughs> All right, well, for the rest of you, welcome to Calvary Chapel. And uh, uh, it is our normal custom here uh, to teach through the scriptures verse by verse and uh, chapter by chapter, book by book. And uh, last week, of course, we did take a break to address an issue that is um, in Canada and is encroaching upon America and Western culture in general. Uh, but now we're back to the, the Beatitudes themselves. And in our introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, and of course the Beatitudes are just the introduction to that sermon, we talked about the reality that, that, that humanity is morally broken, so broken that he's incapable uh, of, in himself of living the righteous life that God requires, and that there is no method, no means, no philosophy by which he could make himself right. Uh, we can't do it um, as individuals, and it's not something we can uh, accomplish together. Uh, it's not like the Tower of Babel, where men got together, and God looked at um, how man was, and he says, well, they're, they're pretty amazing. Um, uh, you know, but when it comes to achieving the righteousness that God requires, uh, man is just completely incapable. And therefore, the Sermon on the Mount is not meant to be a set of rules by which man can achieve that righteousness. Okay? We cannot hand someone the Sermon on the Mount, whether it be uh, someone new to the church, someone outside of the church, not, a, not even our own children, and say, just do these things and everything will be okay. They will never succeed. They will never succeed. Okay? The Sermon on the Mount, which in some ways is similar to the Ten Commandments, though certainly not identical, is meant really to show how far man has strayed from the righteousness of God. It's not a new set of rules that Jesus hopes then that humanity can achieve this righteousness. Uh, the reality is that it's the, the Sermon on the Mount is the Ten Commandments on steroids. Uh, it's a figure of speech. It intensifies all of it. Okay? Jesus reveals the true essence of the righteousness of God. Uh, the prophet Isaiah, when speaking of the Messiah, said that when he comes, he's going to uh, exalt the law and make it honorable. That's Isaiah 42, 21. You see, the Pharisees prior to the first century interpreted law in such a way that it, it diminished you know, the, the, the greater moral demands of the law, and in its place they, they sort of codified a diluted version of the most essential parts of the law to what we might say to a manageable set of rules. And uh, that is something that Jesus, uh, in a concentrated manner, corrects in the Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, and then he'll deal with other things later. Um, also, something else that the Pharisees did was they took the less essential things of the law and they exaggerated and they complicated them, like the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus will also confront that later. And that actually is quite entertaining. 
when he does that. So here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus provides really what the essence of true righteousness is, which is moral perfection as a reflection of God's nature, his moral nature. Okay. So this, the Word of God always seeks to bring all things in conformity to God himself, to make man like his creator. Now the problem is that man typically does one of four things. Uh, he becomes legalistic, which is pharisaical. Uh, he becomes liberal. Uh, there's no lack of that today. He becomes indifferent. Uh, well, I mean, it's impossible anyway, so whatever. Uh, and, the, and the one that is most common, of course, is we become rebellious intentionally. Uh, how many guys have been there? How many guys were rebellious and you didn't even know why? Just a rebel without a cause. You're just rebellious. And you live your teenage years into your 60s and 70s. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the believer looks at all of the Word of God, all of the demands of God, and says, I, I can't possibly be this on my own. I'm never going to be this in this lifestyle, but for the glory of God and by the grace of God, I'm going to move in that direction the best that I can through faith. And um, Also, we mentioned in the introduction that the Beatitudes differ from the rest of the sermon because rather than prescribing moral virtue, it describes the, the disposition of God's people. We might say that describes the character of the citizens of heaven in spite of, regardless of their circumstances. And that's the bite, really, behind the Beatitudes. And uh, in fact, of much of Jesus' teaching, he always throws in these interesting paradoxes. And um, so we'll have fun with those. Last thing in review, these Beatitudes uh, are for every citizen of heaven. It's, It's not, as we said, one Beatitude for one person and another for another person. All the Beatitudes should describe all of the citizens of heaven. They should describe the collective disposition of the people of God. They should all be true of all of us in a progressive way as we fall in step with Jesus himself. So with that said, if, if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading to you out of the New King James Version. Uh, if you're new, uh, the New King James Version is not the version uh, it's the version that I've chosen to use for uh, certain reasons. I use many versions. This is the one I teach out of. Uh, if you have another version, it's fine. So we don't have like a um, whatever. There's no rule. Okay. Uh, if you have the New World Translation, we need to talk. Okay. Uh, there's a few translations that are not good. And if you have questions about those, we can talk about it later. Um, also... Um, Chris, uh, Jaleb's mother, uh, her labs have come back and they're afraid that she has liver cancer. So um, I'm going to read the text to you, then we'll, we'll pray for Chris as well. So um, Matthew chapter 5, I'll pick it up in verse 2 and I'll read through verse 12. Then Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, 
for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Well, Father, um, there's no titles to the sermons of the Bible, um, but perhaps a good title for this one would be The Christian's Key to Happiness. And it's always in spite of difficulty and um, adversity and things like that. And, and Lord, so it's not common to our experience, um, but it's, it's a heavenly concept. And so, Lord, we pray that you would, you'd bring it down for us. And, Lord, grant us grace that we might understand and live, uh, Lord, as good citizens of heaven as we walk closer to you uh, day by day. And Lord, we, we lift up Chris to you. Um, I know that her heart is anxious and um, I know that her family is concerned and we pray that, Lord, that you'd minister to them in their hearts, that you comfort them, fill them with faith, Lord, so that they could trust you through all of this. But Lord, when it comes to lab work like that, there's something that we would really like to see and that's a false negative or false positive, rather, we, we would like you to heal her. And so we ask that you would touch her body and, um, and just raise her up from this, Lord. Grant her grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm not crying this time. I just have a runny nose. I had a cold, and I did get tested for COVID, and it was negative. Uh, can you hear me? Just don't consult John Wiley on how to administer the test. <laughs> All right. Well, let's, uh, let's turn back to verse 2 and 3 and get into this. So Jesus opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So as we said last time, Jesus has you know, moved on from the proclamation of the coming kingdom in order to teach what it is to live as citizens of that kingdom. Uh, those of the kingdom, he says, they are blessed. And I've, as you know, I've changed that from blessed to blessed so that we don't confuse the meaning here. Uh, blessed, this particular Greek word means to be happy. It means to be happy, okay? <laughs> They're not simply blessed or fortunate or privileged and have uh, advantages as citizens. They are happy citizens. But then in all of these, in all 10 of these Beatitudes, every time this word happy is used, uh, it's associated with what is unhappy, as we just read. Uh, the person is happy, but their situation is not. In the first Beatitude, there is happiness in spite of, in the midst of, uh, what Jesus calls spiritual poverty. Spiritual poverty. So what is that? Um, does it speak of an unspiritual person? No, it doesn't. Uh, quite the opposite. Uh, but this person would never view themselves as spiritual. This, the, the, the person who experiences spiritual poverty 
they understand their destitution apart from God, and they know their utter dependence upon God. The word poor is interesting because it, it literally means to cower. It means to cower. The images of a beggar who lowers himself at the benevolent mercy of another, uh, cowering before them as they express their destitution to those who are able to help them. Okay? It is no show for this person. Uh, I think in our culture, we're, uh, we often encounter you know, the, the presumptuous, arrogant panhandler. Uh, who believes that they're entitled to a handout. Uh, that's not this person, okay? This person realizes that they actually deserve nothing and no one owes them anything at all. And if they were to be refused or to, to be denied kindness, they wouldn't be embittered by it. They seek mercy, but they don't demand it, all right? The poor in spirit, they're deeply humble. Now, of course, Jesus is not talking about those who are experiencing physical hunger. He's not thinking of those in material poverty necessarily. He's referring to those who are humble in heart and they just recognize that their greatest need is grace, the grace of God. They know what they deserve. They know they, they have not the means to avoid it. And so their heart cowers before a benevolent and merciful God soliciting his pity. And to these, Christ has promised his kingdom, not only to rule in their hearts in this present life, but to have them rule at his side in the future. And that's important, okay? And it's this future reality which is grounded in the promise of God that makes them happy. They carry with them through all of their present circumstances this promise of future hope. So they're happy. They're happy. And, and as we look at the, um, the Beatitudes here, you'll notice that they have uh, an eschatological tone to them. It, it, of course, it deals with the present time, but all of them also look forward to a future time because our greatest hope is something that is fully secured, not now. If this was our greatest hope now, how depressing would that be? But our future hope is, is yet in the future, at least in, in its full realization. It's the inheritance and the kingdom of heaven. He says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall become comforted. That is, happier those who mourn. <laughs> Happy. Probably one of the strangest beatitudes, because Jesus is saying that his citizens are happy in sorrow. How do we reconcile those kinds of paradoxes? How do we do that? Of course, like the last one, it can really only be solved by the promise, which is fully secured in the future. Uh, his, his promise accompanies and permeates the pain we experience, the loss and the heartache. And so as, as many of you know, you've experienced, it's just a matter of time before evil in this world touches you or touches you again and again and again. It seems like uh, for some of us, we just, we get clobbered uh, just to get up and get clobbered again and again and again. And if it doesn't touch you directly, it touches someone who is close to you which, of course, indirectly injures you, and then you mourn because of that. And really, this constitutes nothing less than a normal life in a world that is just inundated with evil. And because the believer just abhors evil, when, even when he's not directly affected by it, he has innumerable reasons to mourn, to be grieved. Yeah. 
But the believer, in spite of all this, he knows that evil has an expiration date. Everything man-made has an expiration date. And evil is, that's one of the original things that man made. And it will expire. God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world according to what is right. And once he is judged, all evil will be banished. Nothing but righteousness will remain for his people. And so the saying goes, he will wipe away every tear. That's, we say, eschatological. That's for the last things. That's for the future. That's the end of this mess. And it's the beginning of a whole new thing. All grief caused by evil will cease. When we embrace that reality through faith, it comforts the soul. But the problem is is that when, uh, and I would say even for believers oftentimes, when we fail to embrace that reality by faith, we have a tendency to kind of accept the current reality of evil as a, as a permanent reality, hoping to escape only by death. But that doesn't have to be that way. Okay, we can enjoy the happiness that Christ provides now because we can look beyond all of this. Evil certainly will chase the wicked and unbelieving to the grave for eternity. But for us, no way. We have a future hope. Now, Something that I've experienced personally, and I've, and I've watched a number of you uh, endure and experience, is that you know, you know what it's like to be tethered to Christ as you just, it seems to be assaulted by the evils of this world. And it really does ravish your soul. It does. But as I've watched people um, being tethered to him, that that Christ has kept them happy, even as evil just continues to encroach. And what it does instead of you know, getting you down, it actually helps you look forward more and more to when it's, you know, it's all relieved, it's all done. And uh, we can be ripped off as believers, but we can continue to look forward. You know, scripture says that um, Jesus despised the shame of the cross but he, he looked beyond it to both the redemption of man and to being reunited with his father. And beyond the cross was, you know, the presence of God, uh, uh, joy everlasting, and, and all of this. And God has given us, the believer, that same perspective as he hedges us in as we endure tragedy. Verse 5, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Happier the meek. Uh, the word for meek also means to be humble, but it carries with it the idea of being gentle, of being mild. So the meek do not impose. They don't insist their own way. The, the meek are slow to speak. They're quick to listen. They're, they're not forceful with their opinions or preferences. Now, it's not that they lack conviction. How many of you guys confuse quiet, meek people as if they lack conviction? I've been shocked more than once by people that seem to be just so passive and quiet, but then when an important issue arises, they're the first to open their mouth and say, I don't think so. I love that about meek people. Uh, they don't get uh, ruffled over petty things. They can just kind of ignore that. But as soon, as soon as something important arises, they take a firm stand and uh, they're unmovable in their position. Another interesting thing about meek people is they don't view themselves as essential. They can be overlooked. They can be passed by, and they're not wounded. 
Okay, they're not injured by that. And I think it's important to say about meekness that this one should not be the attribute of some people within the body of Christ, but a growing quality among all of us. Paul says, and I love how he, he, he put the perspective he puts on this. He says, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Let your gentleness be known to all men. When he says the Lord is at hand, he says, because we're about to stand before the judge. So make sure that you let your gentleness be known. That's Philippians chapter 4, verse 5. Here in verse 3, the poor in spirit are promised the kingdom of heaven. Uh, but here, the meek are promised the earth. The earth. Now, we've already said that all of the Beatitudes describe all of the citizens of heaven. So the same person will enjoy both heaven and earth simultaneously. But how can you enjoy both simultaneously? How can you enjoy heaven and earth at the same time. I'm just seeing if you're thinking. (laughs) As we said before, Jesus isn't just talking about now. He's talking about the future. In Revelation 21, John was shown the eternal state. And in that era, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and the two will merge. They will merge into one. The, The dwelling place of God will be with his people on earth. Revelation 21 Three, God's people will have heaven and earth in one place at one time. I know that we have this concept. I don't know if it's because of Warner Brother cartoons or uh, something in Hollywood that when we die, our permanent abode is in the sky. No, God created us for the earth, for the earth. And so what he'll do is he'll create a new earth for us to inhabit, and then he'll bring down the new heaven and he'll join it with earth. He will dwell among us. That's how these people can enjoy or inherit both and enjoy both simultaneously in the future. They can't currently, but they will. They will. Uh, Something that has always intrigued me about this part of the Beatitudes is that in the scriptures, you know, Moses is forbidden to enter into the Holy Land, Deuteronomy 32, 51 through 52. But being the meekest man who ever lived, Numbers 12.3, he will inherit all of the earth. He'll inherit the promised land. Isn't that interesting? Who cares about the earthly promised land back then when you can have the future where heaven and earth are together? Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, I know myself well enough, and I know enough of you to know that righteousness runs against the grain of our nature, especially the pursuit of personal righteousness. I mean, we want everybody else to be righteous, especially our government. Uh, We would like lots of rules to be for them, but not so much for ourselves. Now, real quick, the righteousness here is not to be confused with the imputed righteousness of Jesus, where God, through our faith, takes the righteousness of Christ, and he attributes it to us, okay, so that then we can be acceptable in his sight. This is not a, a legal righteousness that's accounted to us. This is personal. This is practical righteousness that can only occur as we walk in step with Christ, being conformed to his image as we obey his word. Okay? This, this is hungering and thirsting to be righteous like him. Now, the regenerate person not the old man, but the regenerate part of us where the Holy Spirit 
dwells and reigns, longs to be like Christ. He does. If, 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 there, if you're among us today and you don't have some hunger and thirst for righteousness, uh, there's a problem with your status of redemption. Okay? Because the Spirit of God, when He comes and dwells inside of a human being, like no one else, He hungers and thirsts for your righteousness. Okay? He does. The other thing that happens is that sin bothers the redeemed, and the righteous know that righteousness is the only remedy for it. So we're constantly longing for it. If you don't have that longing, something is broken still. Okay? If you feel like you still have that brokenness with no longing, please come talk to me or one of the elders or a trusted brother or sister in the church. If we were to examine the hunger and thirst for the world, righteousness would not be in the top 10 or 100 or something like that. You know, in our, in our, in our flesh, in the old man, the unredeemed man, uh, you and I want to be right about this and that. Um, if you don't believe that's true, uh, your spouse can attest to it. Okay? Parents know this about their children. Uh, politicians know little else. But this is just self-righteousness, which is rooted in pride and self-preservation, which is unrighteousness. People love to be right, which is rooted in pride and, and self-preservation. They'd rather not be burdened with the struggle for righteousness. Is it a struggle? Oh man. Oh man. It's a struggle. Few people just hunger and thirst for a real Christ kind of righteousness. And it requires sacrifice and the denial of self-will. You know, if you want to get a sample of what people really hunger and thirst for, you know, you look at their Google searches or not. Okay. Their social media, YouTube, what they view on TikTok. But I would say whatever you do, don't look too deep, lest you discover things that you don't want to know. You see things that you can't unsee. At our core, in the old nature, is a longing for power, prestige, popularity, prosperity, pleasure. Everything according to my preference, preferably at the expense of others, to ensure that there's no sacrifice on my part. Now, we would never vocalize that, but our actions speak through a megaphone. Paul warned us that, you know, in the last days, he says, perilous times will come. And the emphasis at the top of the list, that which stands in the way of true righteousness, he says, is the love of self. You know, Paul's list of perilous things unravels this way. He says, men will be lovers of themselves. That's the emphasis. That stands as the umbrella uh, over the entire list. So we might say, well, how does that look, Paul? How does that work itself out in the lives of people. He says, here it is, they'll be lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and having a form of godliness but denying its power. The person that has a form of godliness or piety but denies its power is a false convert. Okay? They're, they're not redeemed. That's 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But you know, this whole list can be abbreviated with one word, unrighteousness. Unrighteousness. Righteousness is only get in the way of our selfish pursuits because righteousness and self are not compatible partners. They're competitors for 
Two different ends that are mutually exclusive, but without righteousness, we're doomed. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, without righteousness, there's no happiness. There is no happiness. It's the way of happiness. Thankfully, God is working in us. Paul says to both give us the desire for righteousness and the ability to perform it. That's Philippians 2, verse 13. It's righteousness. He promises to fill those who hunger for it. So what I, my counsel to you would be to ask God for an intense hunger and thirst for it. And I believe that he'll fill it. I believe that he will. Verse 7, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Happy are the merciful. And I think perhaps mercy is one of the most confused virtues uh, that we have as, as people. And I'll explain. It means to show compassion or to extend kindness to those suffering from, uh, could be the consequences of sin, uh, the consequences of foolishness, or just circumstances in general. It is to show pity. The opposite of mercy is to be hard or callous toward those in need. In the scriptures, mercy is often juxtaposed with judgment. So in one context, to be merciful would be to withhold judgment from those who deserve it. Now, true virtue is revealed in the ones who show mercy without believing they deserve better. We always believe ourselves to be on a higher plane than others. Okay. That's why I stand up here on the... <laughs> the, the truly merciful, they don't withhold judgment in order to escape judgment. Okay. Showing mercy is not an issue of, of merit to them. That would contaminate mercy with selfish ambition. The other day, I, I helped an, an elderly lady put her groceries in her car. And then as my wife and I walked away, well out of distance from her, I, in jest, I said, now I can get into heaven. <laughs> I wish I could have taken a picture of the look on my wife's face. <laughs> Virtuous mercy sees the object of mercy as an end in themselves, as an end in themselves. They do not view that person as a means to an end. Jesus doesn't have that sort of person in mind, the person that would do that or view people that way. He's referring to the person who shows pity for the sake of others with no thought of themselves. Another thing, neither does Jesus mean granting mercy without wisdom, which is irresponsible. That mercy without wisdom can increase someone's misery, which can then increase the misery of others. Some examples here, a civil judge, for example, has it within his power to show mercy to criminals, but he also has the responsibility to protect society from such criminals. So a judge has to exercise careful discretion when granting mercy to those who have offended the law or injured others, lest they make worse criminals out of them and compromise public safety. Isn't that true? And we hope that we have judges like that. They're a dying breed. We have to understand that in, in mercy, sometimes consequences turn out to be the wisest exercise of mercy, sparing a criminal from future misery. Now, we must also be wise in how we exercise mercy in the context of benevolence, lest we enable abusers or bring up spoiled brats and so forth. Paul prayed for the Philippians this way. He said, in this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more, period. If that was the case, it would put love in a free fall. 
love whatever. Just love, love, love. But he doesn't say that. He says, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Discernment. Paul prayed that their love for others would abound, but never to the exclusion of knowledge and wisdom. Paul is praying that their love for others would be guided, would be guided by knowledge and wisdom. This is for the sake of those they love. And Paul goes on, he says that, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense. So exercising love intelligently means that you'll be without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The implication is that love and mercy can be misguided. We see that all the time, misguided mercy. It can be extended to others in foolish ways, which in turn injures the person that we've tried to help. So mercy, as an expression of love, should always be shown, but the method by which we do it must be thoughtful. It has to be thoughtful. I'll give you a a hot example here, homelessness. Homelessness is growing at an exponential rate in America, but it's not for a lack of mercy. It's for lack of intelligence. It's, it's for lack of wisdom. Uh, Seattle has spent more money on homelessness than any other city in the world. And yet, their homeless problem is the worst per capita in the world. Why? It's because of foolish methods. Foolish applications of mercy, like government subsidy, are the greatest contributors to homelessness and material poverty. Biblically, it robs people of their dignity. It removes from them any sense of responsibility and accountability which is blatantly unbiblical. It hurts people. It hurts people. It does not actually help them. On the parts of the giver, it demonstrates love and mercy, but it demonstrates a lack of wisdom. You get it? Different methods need to be applied. Mercy without wisdom increases the need for more mercy. But the wise application of mercy lifts people up out of their misery so that they can help other people in misery. That's the way that the scriptures would train us. So happy is the one who truly and wisely exercises mercy. There's nothing worse than exercising mercy and only increasing people's misery. How can you be happy about that? But when you exercise wise mercy, there can be a good product. God is well pleased with them who show mercy. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Happy are the pure in heart. Now, in the, in the New Testament, the heart is always used figuratively. Always used figuratively. It always refers to one's motives, desires, and impulses. And the, the word purity simply means clean or untainted, void of contamination. It, it actually carries with it the idea of oneness, or we might say a solitary ingredient. A solitary ingredient. Therefore, someone who is pure in heart is driven by goodness alone. There's no ulterior motive. You ever have people do things for you? Or you watch people do things for others? And you're like, something is wrong here. Something's not right. And it's a question of motives. But the pure in heart, they do things for the glory of God. And they know that when they do things for the glory of God, it ultimately affects the good of others. They're not contaminated by self-interest and selfish ambition. Like the meek, these people never use people to secure their own ends. People are not a stepping stone. What they do for people is for people. 
Isn't that nice for people? No notoriety. Their true motive is displayed in their actions. It's not hidden behind their actions. How many of you guys appreciate someone where what you see is what you get? Even, it's, even if it's not good, at least you know what's up. Okay? I love that. I love it. See, I, when I was a young pastor, I mean, I'm still super young. <laughs> but when I was 29 and 30, people kind of took me as a 29 or 30-year-old pastor. So they were really themselves around me, and I loved it. But as I've grown older, people can act really different around me. And I just want to turn around and gag. <laughs> Be yourself. Amen? Be yourself. Be yourself. And I think it's funny when I'm in, you know, I'm around pagans, and uh, we're talking, and, and then uh, they've dropped the F-bomb about 50 times. They've slandered their girlfriend and their parents, and they say, so what do you do for a living? <laughs> and I, I want to wait till they're drinking their soda. And they say, I'm a pastor. <laughs> you know, and I've, I've had so many people say, did I use the F word? <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> but it's not me that said, you'll be held accountable for every perverse thing that comes out of your mouth. So anyway, we love the pure in heart. We respect them. And even if that solitary ingredient is bad, at least we know what we're dealing with, okay? Nothing hidden. I just, I don't like anything hidden. Yeah. This person is not only happy, Jesus promises that they will see God. Now, I don't know what your hopes are of the future uh, in, you know, in the reality, the full realization of God's kingdom. Uh, maybe it's, maybe it is to play a harp or whatever, uh, or I don't know what your thing is, but I want to see God. I want to see God. And once you've beheld the Most High, there's nothing left to see. Nothing. Uh, every beautiful sunset has its rival, right? It does. Uh, stunning people come and go and are forgotten. And dahlias and orchids and other flowers, they astonish us for a moment. But when we look upon God, every other competing beauty, every semblance of majesty which finds its origin in God will fade from our minds as we gaze with eternal wonder upon his face. You guys, there will be nothing left to see, but we will never be more satisfied when we behold the Lord. It'll be amazing. What a promise. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Happier peacemakers. Now, this is not to be confused with one of these. <laughs> Colt, single action army, the peacemaker. It's pretty sweet in its own right, but it's not what Jesus had in mind. And shame on you for thinking it, Mr. Parnum. <laughs> but if you have one of those, I'd like to shoot it. Okay. Purely for its historical significance. Okay. Well, if that's not what Jesus had in mind, what is a peacemaker? The peacemaker, as the word implies, they're the active agent of peace. It's, it's the person that does their best to make peace, but not by staying out of the way. I know people like that, don't you? Well, I'm just, I'm not going to get involved. I'm just going to let them have it out, and however the dust settles, whatever, okay? 
Yeah, now, of course, wisdom informs the peacemaker of the best time to get involved, but they're not happy with just removing themselves completely. Peacemakers can't be passive. They're proactive. They're propagators of peace. They live it. They sow it. They endorse it. It's something they've experienced through the gospel of peace by the Prince of Peace. They need, excuse me, they need others to experience what they have, peace. I'm trying to expedite my notes here because I'm running out of time. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Now, you can't do that by avoiding conflict. You have to be affecting it wisely. The peacemaker, they're not happy letting division lie. Conflict that is unsettled unsettles them. So they seek peace and pursue it, 1 Peter 3.1. Now, something that to demonstrate how valuable peace is, especially within the context of God's people. Paul says the divisive people, the opposite of peacemakers, he says they're not even welcome in the church. He says if there is a divisive person among you, he says they get two warnings and then they're gone. That's it. Jesus says the peacemaker is the happy child of God. Together we need to be the happy community of God. If there's problems in it, People need to be confronted. They need to be warned. And if they will not repent, we have to move them on. Okay? So don't mess around with the unity and peace. Okay? We will find you. <laughs> the author of Hebrews says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, And by this, many become defiled. So where division resides, he's saying bitterness thrives. So the community of Christ, the body of Christ. Paul says, is Christ divided? He asked that question to the Corinthians. The answer is no. And he goes, then I don't understand how you're all divided where you're at. It can't be that way. The body of Christ should not be divided. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's another interesting paradox. Happy are the persecuted. Now the word persecution literally means to pursue with the idea of diligence or earnestness. But of course Jesus is using it in a negative sense. So by persecution he means to say when people pursue you, they harass you, they mistreat you with repeated acts of meanness, hatred, or enmity. Well that's disturbing enough, but... The reason that Jesus gives for these people persecuting is because of righteousness. Guys, that's becoming trendy in the West. Persecuting for righteousness. We're going to be persecuted for what is right. The believer who lives for Christ, he sort of becomes the symbol, okay, the, uh, the object of hatred for the persecutor. So the point of contention is righteousness itself. Paul just comes out and says it when speaking to Timothy. Uh, I've always thought, well, how do you groom young guys in the ministry? He says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Are you in or not? (laughs) So living godly in Christ Jesus, you guys, is the epitome of righteousness, which is the greatest target of persecution. Now, the context of Paul's statement comes from uh, the world's response to him preaching the gospel to unbelieving pagans and to unbelieving Jews. Here's the full context. Speaking to Timothy, Paul says, Timothy, you have carefully followed my doctrine, 
manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them the Lord delivered me. And then Paul says, yes, and everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus is going to suffer persecution. You guys never underestimate the danger of living righteously in a pagan world, okay? This is a promise. Last time I checked, all of the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes, and they are amen. That is, his promises will come to pass wherever they apply. And this one applies to every single Christian who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus, especially in the context of preaching the gospel. I love when I hear men say that, well, you know, religion is a crutch and Jesus is this and that, and they're boasting about their toughness and manhood. Oh, you think you're tough? Go grab your Bible, go into a Muslim community, go on the street corner and preach the gospel. Let's see what a stud you are now. Real men preach the gospel, okay? Cowards avoid it. That's the truth. But here Jesus says that those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for righteousness' sake, get persecuted for a lot of reasons, they're happy. And he says, to them is promised the kingdom of God. Can you be happy under persecution? Can you take a beating with a smile on your face? Well, maybe not on your face. But the Hebrew Christians, it says they joyfully accepted the plundering of their personal property. How so? The text says because they knew that they had a better and enduring possession for themselves in heaven. Again, it's eschatological. It looks forward. Hebrews 10.34. Now, earlier in verse 3, the kingdom of heaven is promised to the poor in spirit. But here, the kingdom of God is promised to those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So the question arises at this point, what is the difference, if any, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven? Now, some insist that there's a huge difference. Others reject the idea. But what does the Bible say? Well, we're not going to look at it today. (laughs) I don't want to get distracted from what Jesus is talking about here. I want to finish up here. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, persecuted is just a term. It doesn't describe what actually happened to many of the prophets, Um, like Isaiah, who we believe was um, separated by horses. That's persecution, okay? But he says here, happy are the reviled, the persecuted, and slandered. So revile, to reproach, to defame, disparage, to assail with abusive words. Slander, uh, here Jesus means to falsely accuse of evil or wickedness. Now remember, they view righteousness as evil. That's the perspective of the persecutor. Now Jesus, of course, was no stranger to any of this. They accused him of blasphemy against God blasphemy against the temple of God. They accused him of breaking the Sabbath and of being a glutton and a drunkard. He was used to it. But Jesus didn't care. He didn't care what people said. Even when they made multiple attempts on his life, they tried to cancel him, if we're going to use a contemporary term, discredit him. It's clear in the scriptures, he came to do his father's will, to preach the truth, so he pushed forward. He was ever determined. He was absolutely unrelenting. And we admire that. But understand, his example, though it's impressive, it's also imperative. His people share the same responsibility. We do. And to do God's will 
at any expense, you guys, will always be our greatest achievement. Always. But the problem is getting God's people to not be afraid, especially in these times. The challenge is to get the community of Christ collectively to speak intelligently, winsomely, with conviction and courage. And when we finally do, it will be the most liberating and invigorating thing for us. To no longer be afraid of the culture or the consequences is not just going to empower us, it's going to inspire others. You know, the disciples experienced this for themselves after the resurrection and after the giving of the Holy Spirit. You know, they went from hiding in the shadows to preaching in the temple, in the very city that Christ was crucified in. Paul observed the same thing in the church in Rome after he was imprisoned. He wrote to the Philippians this note. He said, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things that have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. But they made a mistake when they put Paul in prison. Because now, rather than just having one preacher, they got hundreds. It's beautiful. What do we have to do around here? Get someone in prison for the gospel in order to awaken the church in America? Somebody volunteer. Go preach the gospel. And as soon as we endure persecution and slander, Jesus says that we'll rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Just like Peter and the boys, you know, they were standing before the Sanhedrin, they, then they had them beaten. And it says they were overjoyed because they were counted worthy to be, suffer persecution and to be slandered to be shamed for the name of Christ, Acts 5.41. You know, there's a common thread that's woven throughout history from one godly generation to the next, and it's persecution, persecution. 100,000 believers have been martyred every year since the resurrection. 100,000 every year on average. Yeah, it's not a thing of the past. It's, it's the heritage of the faithful from the first prophet who spoke for the Lord, and it will be for the last person who stands in the path of truth. From the world's perspective, it's a means to misery. But for those in Christ, it's the way of happiness. For the poor in spirit, for those who mourn, for the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for the merciful, the pure in heart, for the peacemaker, the persecuted, the slandered, and the falsely accused. I believe what Jesus said. Let's go ahead and stand up and pray.